humans have cultivated crops to have a much higher sugar content. And so we're starting to see higher rates of obesity and diabetes in captive wildlife. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Raw Safari Podcast. I want to thank you all for listening to the episode so far and your continued support. I really appreciate it. I am currently sitting on the porch of a cabin in upstate New York. Coronavirus is still going strong, but a little escape seemed like a good idea. So I'm chilling here with a lake, an iced coffee, and my recording gear, putting this episode together for y'all. Even more exciting than my little vacation, though, is the interview that I have coming for you. I promised you some deep dives on Raw Safari, and this one is going to get really deep and really nerdy, and I love every second of it. In fact, this episode goes so deep, I'm going to turn it into a two-parter. So for this week and next week, you're going to be listening to my interview with Mieko Temple. Mieko is working on her master's in animal nutrition right now, and last year did a six-month fellowship at the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. Although she's no longer at those parks, she does tell a lot of great stories about her time there. Mieko is talented, brilliant, passionate about what she does, and is just an incredible soul. She's also been doing a great job using her voice online for advocacy, which is really important right now. In fact, our conversation starts with me thanking her for encouraging me to use my platform to speak out and remind everyone that Black Lives Matter, because they do. Along with all her nerdy scientific stuff, Mieko is also an absolutely incredible artist who does some really unique and amazing drawings of animals, and donates 20% of her proceeds to various charities. You can see her art at M-I-E-K-O-T-E-M-P-L-E on Instagram, and at mtillustrations.com. Over the next two weeks, you're going to hear a lot about animal nutrition, both as it pertains to zoo populations and some information you can use for your own pets. Why the term gut might not mean what you think it does, how ruminant stomachs work, and at least one great poop story. One quick note, there were a lot of audio issues due to the remote recording of this interview. I apologize for any pops or other noises I couldn't remove, but believe me when I say, the content is worth the sound issues. Okay, here is my interview with Mieko Temple. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited to be able to share more about animal nutrition and just what that looks like, both from like a, a domestic animal side, but also like, like especially the exotic animal care side. So this is really cool that you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Before I do anything else, I just want to say thanks for all the awesome advocacy stuff that you're doing online. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate that feedback. Thank you. You know, you you pushed me to post something on Raw Safari and I have never, I have a personal account where I'll post stuff, but I've never done anything political on Raw Safari because it's, it's a, a public thing and it's, you know, not quote the point of it. But um, you doing that helped me realize that it's not politics. I'm not telling you who to vote for. It's it's a human thing. Yeah. And I lost some followers and I've never cared less. <laughs> Good. 
Like I watch my follower account like a nut. But I was like, okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that's what I really appreciated about so many people who are coming forward and making solidarity statements and calls to action and doing action themselves. I've lost followers too. I've I've seen posts from people who are much bigger than I could ever possibly imagine being um, making similar statements and being very happy about the fact that people who don't stand with them on this are going to not be participating in their followership. And I think that's great. Yeah, I agree. So thank you for that little push. It was it was what I needed. And and just know that in at least that small way, you made an impact. So yay. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that that we could all grow as people. I'm still learning about how to be the best ally that I can. I fully acknowledge that this is something that I will always be working at and learning at and eloquently put by other resources that I've seen. We will never truly arrive at the perfect allyship. It's something that we will forever be learning and striving towards. But I hope to come as close to that asymptote as I can and try and share as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to mess up and I'm going to fix those mistakes and then continue working forward. So thanks for being here. (laughs) That's awesome. Tell me about your education. You have some cool stuff going on. You were the Gilbert Martin Fellow in Exotic Animal Nutrition, which is something that I did not know existed until I stalked your profile a little bit. Tell me just about all of this and how you came to decide that animal nutrition is something that you were going to dedicate your life to. So I started my education at the California Polytechnic State University, uh, Cal Poly for short, in San Luis Obispo, California. And I did my undergraduate degree there in animal science with a pre-veterinary concentration. And that was a road towards vet school. And I even got accepted my freshman year. There was kind of an early acceptance sister program with a university in Scotland, the University of Glasgow. And I spent the remainder of my undergraduate career working towards going to this vet school. And I was about, I was days away from submitting my visa packing up my life and heading to Scotland. Um, I'd already purchased my plane ticket. And then I had a really sobering conversation with some friends and family who were very concerned about how much debt I would be putting myself into and thought that maybe I hadn't completely thought it through. And less as a move of agreement with them, but more as a move of caution. I decided to defer my acceptance to vet school and pursued of a master's in um, animal science at Cal Poly as well. So I've, I've stayed on since graduating my undergraduate degree and have been working um, towards a master's with a focus in animal nutrition. And so Cal Poly is known for its agriculture program. So this program that I'm participating in is focused on domestic livestock species. And specifically, my thesis research is in poultry nutrition. So I'm looking at meat chickens. They're called broilers. Um, Not everyone knows that term. And so normally, you just kind of think about chickens as one big group, but there's egg chickens, which are called layers. And then there's meat chickens, which are called broilers. So I'm looking at broiler nutrition. And I'm looking into how if we use alternatives to antibiotics in their feed, because previous to some legislation that's been passed in the last five to 10 years, that has become increasingly more rigid and structured in how antibiotics can be used in livestock management. Um, 
Now you can no longer use it, use antibiotics unless they're on a prescription basis from a veterinarian. So they can't be just used in livestock feed, just kind of low dose, kind of blanket. Let's just make sure nobody gets an infection kind of thing. It's called prophylactic feeding. That's not what I would have guessed that meant. Yeah. Yeah. So prophylactic just means kind of low dose, non-therapeutic application of any kind of medicine or whatever. No longer can we use antibiotics prophylactically. And so now researchers and producers of animal livestock are trying to look into alternatives. So I'm testing whether a commercial probiotic blend or a commercial essential oil blend can be as efficacious an alternative to if prophylactic antibiotics were used. Um, And so we're looking at the microbiome of the gut in these birds, how they're different based on what experimental treatments are being said, but then also what are their differences in growth and bone strength. These are all different parameters that um, animal producers are really interested in to make sure that their production levels will be consistent. Is this a profitable choice to be making? Is this healthier for the birds too? Are there, is their general welfare and husbandry improved or at least consistent? And so these are all different things that we're looking at in my research. But that kind of avenue of looking at commercial livestock situations and looking at how nutrition is tied to everything from welfare to uh, kind of the mental health of these animals to their general overall health and frequency of disease or other sorts of issues, it all really comes back to nutrition and how that husbandry is applied. And so I've always been interested in more than just livestock species. And as much as I have appreciated getting the chance to work with these birds, I don't really see myself continuing in the poultry industry per se. There's a lot of opportunities for people, but my heart isn't as excited about chickens as it is exotic species. Sure. And so... One of the uh, advisors on my thesis committee is, uh, he used to be a zoo nutritionist, and he started his zoo nutrition career at the San Diego Zoo, and working at the San Diego Zoo in the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, and then went on to be the staff nutritionist for the Smithsonian's National Zoo, and then went on to uh, join academia and contribute his, uh, his scientific skills in a research basis. So I am very blessed to have been able to work with him and have his tutelage for so long. Um, so that is Dr. Mark Edwards. And he has been a really, really strong influence on my career and my aspirations. And so when he shared that the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Global Nutritional Services Department annually has a fellowship, which is a research position for recent graduates to participate in kind of applied animal nutrition in a very prestigious institution and working with a very uh, strong science-based team of experts, both in nutrition, but then also working closely with the veterinary team. And so it's an application process, um, and then you get a phone interview, and then if 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 you fit with their program and the team dynamic, you get to spend six months working with San Diego Zoo Global. That's incredible. I, I love everything about uh, San Diego uh, Zoo Global and the Safari Park and the actual zoo. Um, I spent a summer playing in Laguna Beach at a theater out there. 
Very cool. Yes. And I became a, a uh, zoo member and, and basically every time I had time off was shooting down the coast to San Diego and uh, hitting up a Phil's coffee and then going to uh, one of the zoos. <laughs> Big Phil's fan. Nice. I grew up in the Bay Area and actually I'm actually in my family home in the Bay right now taking um about three weeks away from my university work just because our labs are shut down from COVID. Sure. So I can write anywhere. So I might as well just wait it out here, spend some time with family. Uh we were all tested negative for COVID, so it seemed like a prudent choice to just come home and take a break. Um, and I am a very big Phil fan. <laughs> That's awesome. There's actually one right by the National Zoo in DC. That's right. And for years, I thought it was a local DC thing. I never really looked into it, but it was my treat. I would go to the zoo, I would get a Phil's, and then I end up out in San Diego, and there are a bunch of them. And I find out it's it's a California company, and it's it's almost just a fluke that there's one in DC. And it just yeah. Uh, and this isn't a coffee podcast, but yes, it's an amazing place. <laughs> Um, cool. So a uh, quick question just um, for anyone who doesn't know, and, and yes, that includes me, but I've, I've heard the term, uh, you know, internship, externship. What is a fellowship? Great question. So internships aren't necessarily a guarantee that you'll be paid. And externships are similar, but tend to be shorter. Fellowships are a guarantee that you're being paid for your research commitment and research contribution. So an internship is more, more often is a volunteer basis and as well as externship. Um, and so a fellowship tends to have some sort of remuneration or maybe a grant attached to it. And that allows for the person participating in that program to have some kind of financial remuneration. Sure. Sometimes the words get interchanged. Sometimes internships are paid. Externships are longer. It's a little bit loosey-goosey, but as far as I understand, typically internships are volunteer basis longer, externships volunteer basis shorter, and then fellowships are, there isn't necessarily time definition, but there is some sort of remuneration. Cool. And is that like yours was the Gilbert Martin Fellowship? Is that because somebody named Gilbert Martin decided to fund that and that's where that all comes from? Is that how that works? Yes. So the, the San Diego Zoo um, Gilbert Martin Exotic Animal Nutrition Fellowship is uh, on an annual basis. There's a donation from the Gilbert Martin Foundation. Amazing. All right. Well, shout out to Gilbert Martin Foundation. That's great. Yeah. I was very thankful that they were able to provide the funds to do that. And not only that, for my position, my year, they were also able to fund a second fellow. So I, there were two of us um, that were working in this same program. And so I spent a majority of my time at the zoo. I spent four days at the zoo and one day at the safari park. And then the other fellow spent four days at the safari park and one day at the zoo. But we scheduled it so that our shared day overlapped. So we each had a shared day at the zoo and then we each had a shared day at the safari park. So we had two days a week together so that we could learn together, participate in projects together with each team. So it was a really nice collaborative effort. That's really awesome. I love that. So tell me about uh, your time at the zoo, the safari park. Did you get to work directly with any animals? Were you doing purely study stuff? And and maybe like, what were your favorite animals to spend time with either professionally or just when you're walking around the zoo? Great question. When I was working at the zoo in the safari park, the majority of my time was, I'd say it was probably like a 60 or 70% on the computer 
30, 40, depending on the day, out on the grounds or at the veterinary hospital, either assisting the veterinary team and the staff nutritionist, or actually getting a chance to be hands-on with the animals um, from a nutritional health perspective. And so I'll get into that and what that means in a second. But from my computer standpoint, what I was doing was a lot of different data analysis um, or diet formulation. So from the data analysis side, my two biggest projects, one was looking at an elephant's medical history and then just trying to look back over a two and a half year period for any trends um, because she had a chronic health issue. And so we were trying to see, was it nutrition related? What, were there outside factors? What can we do in her health care to make sure that she's optimized for the best life possible? And so we were looking at both from a nutritional perspective as well as other factors that the animal care staff had been uh, compiling over the years. They had been using something called an ERB, which is an electronic red book, which is one, one form of common zoo kind of data keeping um, and recording. And then, um, so I was looking through that and then the KDRs, which are the keeper daily reports, which is another way that they record different observations and data for the different animals that they have in their care. And then also looking at the medical uh, history reports that the veterinarians and the veterinary staff were creating as well as our nutritional staff. So just looking at that, trying to compile all that data and then processing it to see, are there any trends? Is there any overlap? What could possibly be interacting to cause um, this consistent issue that she's been having? And then my other project was looking at um, Diker and how um, how can we most successfully wean them in order for them to have the best chances after weaning for a, for a hand-wearing perspective? Um, a lot of times, dikers have had a tricky transition from weaning to adult food, and that kind of juvenile stage, they sometimes can have a tricky transition. And so trying to identify any sorts of deficits for nutrition that we can uh, remedy so that they have the best chance possible. Um, because parent rearing tends to have higher success rates than hand rearing. And that's just because we're not the parents of that animal. Sure. They have the instincts and the, the resources to do the best job. And we're just trying to be a good second mama. Sure. Makes sense. I'm curious, uh, really quick, do we know if they have that problem in the wild as well? Or is that simply uh, an issue for captive populations? As far as my research was able to inform me, it seemed like it was more of a captive-related issue, but we don't know a ton about diker reproduction in the wild. And so there is still a lot more that we can learn about the species, but it seems like this is more a captive situation, a captive hand-rearing situation. Oh, right. Compared to um, any sort of complications that they might see in the wild. Makes sense. Okay. Good question. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. So a lot of my time was spent on the computer doing those data projects, but then also I got to spend a lot of my time doing diet formulations, which was really exciting. Um, I had been able to do some diet formulation during my master's, and there was some practice that I had during my nutrition classes in my undergraduate degree, especially the classes that I had with Dr. Mark Edwards, because he put an emphasis on how to formulate diets how to balance for calories versus volume versus those essential macro and micronutrients. So having that background in that area, the nutritionists were comfortable with myself and the other, the other fellow to practice formulating these diets and then sharing them with the nutritionists for final approval. And so one of my favorite 
opportunities was getting to formulate these diets because it was like a puzzle. You had to take all these different pieces of like, okay, this is the weight of the animal. This is their life stage. These are some other um, outside factors that might influence it. Like is the animal pregnant or is the animal on a weight loss plan or is the animal on like restricted movement because it's healing from a, from an injury or from uh, any sort of medical um, intervention that needed to occur. And so it's on restricted movement. So it doesn't have as much, opportunity to move around so we need to maybe reduce its calories or something and so then looking at the calorie amount that you need um, the different specificities for that species species can range even though they might be closely related they might need special accommodations or differences in their diet and then working with the fact that we don't have the ingredients that they would find in the wild right i don't know if you or your followers are um, up to date on some of the different things that have come out about nutrition lately. But one of the things that we are starting to see is that humans have cultivated crops, especially fruits and vegetables, to have a much higher sugar content than they ever would have in the wild. And so we're starting to see higher rates of obesity and diabetes in captive wildlife because they're eating the fruits and vegetables that we've cultivated and that they wouldn't find in the wild. Right. So a lot of the wild fruits that they would be eating have a similar sugar content to a lot of like leaves almost. And so the, the sugar content of a banana or a cantaloupe that we're going to be feeding them because it's a fresh fruit and they eat fresh fruit in the wild is going to be exponentially higher. And so realizing that those nutritional values are very different from what their wild counterparts are experiencing is another thing that we have to keep in mind. And so we have a database, a database of nutritional facts for all of these different ingredients that we have available to these animals. And we draw that directly from the USDA database on food. So if you go and you just Google USDA food database, there is a massive compendium of everything from sliced strawberries to Cheerios to like either brand name or just generic type foods that you can think of, they are out there and there is a very specific breakdown of those nutrients. And so we would draw from that database if we hadn't already compiled that data into our own database. And then we can go through and calculate the diets um, based on the calories, the volume, the micro and macronutrients those animals need. That's really incredible. And I love that so much because something that I, I hear a lot on, on my account is people who are very anti-zoo. And, um, and I'm happy to have that discussion with them. I'm, I'm clearly not that way. And I, you know, for good reason. But oh, I feel like if everybody could hear what you just said, and that that kind of detail goes into the love and the care of these animals, then um, it would definitely change some minds. And that's that's really, really amazing. Uh, it's also interesting, um, you know, I just the other day uh, heard um, Donald Faison on the Scrubs Rewatch podcast that they're doing was saying that a, uh, a famous LA nutritionist who works with a lot of stars who, you know, are doing like the Marvel movies and stuff uh, has told people that at the way bananas are now structured, if you are really craving a banana, just go eat a Hershey bar because it's as good for you nutritionally, at least as far as the sugars are concerned, he's focused on sugars. Whoa. And that if you're craving something, just eat the darn chocolate because that's what you really want. Um, I don't know if I necessarily, you know, agree with that, but uh, I'm also not ripped uh, like a Marvel star. So, <laughs> but I did think that was interesting. <laughs> I can see that. I can see the nutritionist point in that the fruits, have a lot more sugars. However, 
personally, I would say just from what I've been able to read over the past few years about nutrition, both animal and human related, because it's not interchangeable, but it's very similar. And a lot of animal strategies and research is based on where human nutrition has started doing the research. And so then it's been translated to an animal model. But I would say high fructose corn syrup has definitely been an issue in human nutrition. And so maybe it's slightly better to eat the banana because it doesn't <laughs> have high fructose corn syrup and some of the other things that are in our sugar. But I get the metaphor and the principle of it. We have cultivated fruits that have very high sugars. <laughs> oh, that's that's amazing. That's now I feel bad about the banana I ate before this interview. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. But that's that is something that I think a lot of people don't realize about zoo healthcare or zoo animal care and health is that the food that we're feeding these animals, I feel like people have a misconception that it's like not that great or it's just like some random stuff or you just like give them a chicken bone and they're fine. But it's very calculated. It's very scientific. It's based on the nutrient requirements that these animals have. And there have been many scientific studies over the years, either with that exact species or species that are closely related enough that we can extrapolate to how do we feed these animals. Like one of my favorite diets to, to formulate was a weight loss diet for a taper. Oh. And the taper, I love tapers. They're amazing. I love tapers. They're so good. Such amazing animals. Uh, circling back to your earlier question of what are some of my favorite animals? Oh my gosh. I love tapers. Their noses are just so special. Oh, yes. They're so cute. And their little watermelons when they're, you oh. know, when they're babies. Oh, so good. They're just so cute. We actually, the San Diego Zoo actually just had one born about, oh, maybe it was eight months ago. Yeah eight or nine months ago. Oh, she's just precious. But you would never consider that a taper is basically like feeding a horse. Huh? Who would know? But they, they are odd toed ungulates. So they have a similar uh, evolutionary history. And from there, they've been able to have a very similar diet in that horses are very fiber and grass and um, herbivorous dependent. And tapers are similar. They, they eat a lot of what's called forage. Um, and that's a huge component of omnivorous and herbivorous wildlife species is this forage component. And so that's something that a lot of people aren't familiar with either. What is forage? So forage is basically um, vegetative material um, of kind of shrubby and woody type um, plants. So a lot of tree branches with leaves intact will be offered to foraging species. Um, and so a lot of ficus, acacia, willow, different types of species of plants are fed to these animals. And the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park both have um, forage farms, basically, oh, wow. where they, they cultivate and they, they have these dedicated spaces to growing and cultivating forage for these animals because it is a hugely important component of their diet and animals that don't have forage tend to have less consistent health when it comes to their overall lifetime um, and animals that have a higher component of forage um, studies have been done that show that they have higher gut health um, overall improved just welfare and health um, and that it improves gut motility the gut microbiomes are incredibly different so this is a very important component to their diet. And so back to like my meta, my example of analogizing horses and, and tapers, they 
have a very similar um, phylogenetic history. And so because of that, they have a very similar digestive tract and digestive strategies. And so that's one kind of example where we extrapolate from a horse to feed a taper, but we apply things that are unique to the natural history of a taper, like forage. So this is a really cool way that we take what we know from known species, especially livestock, where we have a ton of research and that can be well applied to other species. Bovids and other ruminants are a really good example of being able to extrapolate from a cow or a goat or a sheep to a um, a kudu or a, like a Thompson's gazelle or a garanook or something. Things that are ruminants or like related to ruminants, we can extrapolate that information and make sure that they get the necessary nutrients. Cool. Now, and is that true across the board with like a lot of different species? Like since you mentioned a, a zebra, could you take, you know, I'm assuming that would be pretty closely related to, to horses. Mm-hmm. So is that something where I'm sure because of the racing industry that um, horses have to be incredibly well studied, whereas zebras may be less so. And are you able to just apply that and then obviously build off of it? Like specifically to your point, like the racing industry, those animals are top notch athletes. They are incredibly well trained. They have very specific nutrition that is optimized for a very high caliber athlete. And a lot of our animals in captive wildlife situations are not going to be running a mile or more at top speed. Um, so, but, but that research that goes into thoroughbred nutrition versus any other kind of horse nutrition, working horses, um, has, there's been a lot of research that also just looks at the basal metabolic rate. So that's actually a really important term in nutrition and basal metabolic rate or BMR. And that's something that basically helps us understand like at the very bare minimum, what does this animal need to just maintain itself? And that's kind of our square one. Like how do we decide wh- what to give this animal because of at the baseline, that's what it needs. And then we start applying more conditions. Like is the animal pregnant? Or is the animal on that restricted movement, like I talked about earlier? Um, all these diff- different kind of extra tack-ons that then influence how are we going to feed this animal? And so those are different ways that we start trying to calculate all of that. But yes, there's a lot of research that goes into thoroughbreds and other horses, and that's where we have a really strong base for understanding what do these animals need. There's a, a yellow jacket that's getting a little too friendly. <laughs> Uh-oh. Getting a little too jumpy with this murder hornet stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, understandable. <laughs> At least you would know what to feed it if it attacked. So that's... that's, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> They're actually very opportunistic omnivores. Huh. You are the biggest nerd and I love it so much because so am I. That's incredible. <laughs> I actually, I realized, so I, I kind of t- have been taking some notes just of other things I wanted to ask. And as you were talking, I found it so interesting. I just started taking notes like I'm in class, <laughs> like not about questions to ask you, but just literally, I was like, BMR, basal metabolic rate. And then you add conditions and it equals the new plan. For, and I was like, wait, what am I doing? I'm not, I'm not in a class, <laughs> but I'm so fascinated by this that uh, I, I, I switched to note taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate that this is a learning opportunity. <laughs> oh, this is incredible. Of all the early interviews I have set up, uh, when I saw what you do, I was like, I know nothing about it. <laughs> I am so excited. And I was also hoping that you would be, you know, a good talker and able to kind of lead me through it, which which you are, because uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I have... I had no clue about this stuff. This is amazing to me. I did have a question going back a little bit. So you talked about forage. And I feel like in the non-academic animal world, 
a lot of people use the words uh, forage and graze and browse pretty interchangeably. And it's my understanding that they're not that. And so I'm kind of wondering if you could could give me a little insight into that. Yes, I would love to. So this is actually a great question. And a lot of people don't realize that they have very nuanced differences in their definitions and the way that they're applied, especially in a nutrition sense. Colloquially, we just, we say that we're grazing because we snack throughout the day and that I'm just like browsing through the library and that I'm just foraging for information. And so we use these words very commonly in our everyday, but in the nutrition world, they do mean very different things. So a grazer is a noun in that it means that it's an animal that eats different grass-like foods or, or uh, plant material. So that's going to be an animal that is eating the, the grassy portions of, an, of a plant or grass plant. Um, so that's really going to be like a horse. Horses are grazers. Browsers are different in that they are eating the vegetative portion of woody plants and trees and, and forbs and bushes. And so that's going to be like a giraffe. A giraffe is a browser. They're reaching up very high to the tops of those acacia plants and they are using their tongues to get the leafy parts of those trees. Um, so there's a big difference between browsers and grazers forager or foraging that's more of a umbrella term in that it is kind of animals are searching for food seeking out food and then but forage as a noun is going to be specific to those kind of woody plant branches and things that we offer to animals in captive situations and I might be mixing some of my definitions up so if anybody has more specific stuff out there and Call me out. I, I don't mind it. I am one of those big proponents and supporters of getting new information, changing your opinion and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. But, but to the best that I can recall, that's how that they break down and they're different. Um, and it's not necessarily a time thing. I've helped um, teach and, and be a teaching assistant to some of the different nutrition courses that we have at Cal Poly. And I've seen a lot of different answers on quizzes or whatnot that says like, oh, grazers, spend a lot more time eating than browsers or like they eat at different times of day or something, but it's actually a difference between what they are consuming and what they are pursuing to eat. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, for clarifying all of that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about special conditions and all of that. I'm wondering a normal zoo at a normal, um, you know, and, and I, I want to clarify, I'm talking about good ones, AZA, or really, you know, uh, there, there's no Tiger King zoo discussion happening here. And, and I think that's pretty important. Um, so um, how much of the each in, like animals uh, plan is individualized per animal and how much is just per species. And I know there are some examples like schools of fish, you're not going to be able to do an individualized diet for each fish. But beyond something like that, how much is it individualized per animal versus like an overall like, okay, all of the okapi get, and I really don't know, but you know, 10 pounds of this, I, I don't know why I said that, but you know, or each, each red panda gets amount of bamboo or do you just throw a bunch of bamboo in and say here guys have fun and eat your leaf it or eat your biscuits and go from there <laughs> great question great question my experience with formulating diets at the san diego zoo was that there was a species specific diet and that was formulated to address 
species at large based on nutrient requirements that we understand that species, ha species has or that we can extrapolate from a relative species. But then we can also have individual diets for either medical cases or um, individuals that need more prioritized care. So for example, if there's a herd of kudu, but one kudu is for some reason um, having some sort of medical condition or maybe it's being um, like socially uh, pushed away from the food because there's more dominant animals. And so this, this kudu in particular needs to have um, individualized feeding so that it gets enough nutrition. We would then specialize a diet for that individual. Um, especially if maybe it was lower weight because it had been pushed out for so long. And so now this nutritional intervention that we're prioritizing is going to be a higher calorie diet so that this animal can compensate for the fact that it hasn't really maybe getting as much um, nutrition as before because it was in a social dynamic. Um, so yes, we have species at large, but then we also have individuals. Um, and we even had it broken down into more specific situations like, oh, this is a neonatal diet for this species, or this is a juvenile diet for the species, or this is a group diet for five kudu, five adult kudu, or five male adult kudu. Um, so sometimes even then at the sex level, you can have disparities between what nutrition is required to optimize that animal's health. Um, because sometimes there's sexual dimorphism, and so that with a larger animal, it's going to have higher basal metabolic rate, and it's going to require more nutrients than maybe a female or a smaller individual of that species. That makes a lot of sense. That's really awesome. And I assume that since you are at a computer a lot and have a ton of animals when you are at a zoo um, that you're dealing with, I assume that that requires a lot of conversation with the keeper staff and the vet staff. Yes. How, how does all of that work? Yeah, great, great question. You have really awesome questions, John. Thank you. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of communication and, it, and there's a whole kind of communication chain. Um, it's not just kind of Ideally, it's not just anybody emailing the nutritionist like, hey, I need this thing for my animal. Um, and that usually, especially if it's a novel request, like I read that if you give eggs to a hornbill, that it improves their nutrition because in their natural history, they might eat eggs sometimes. Also, I, those were like the first examples I thought of. I don't know if hornbills eat eggs. I didn't deal with hornbill <laughs> diets. So. That was my first example that popped into my head. I should have said something maybe a little bit better. But anyway, <laughs> but my point is, first do a lot of research to try and make sure that they are providing the best, um, most aligned husbandry that is an animal's natural history. Natural history meaning what is their wild, what are their wild counterparts experiencing, and how can that be applied in a, in a captive sense? So natural history is something that a lot of keepers and, and zoo staff and um, healthcare professionals for exotic species in captive situations will reference as, okay, this is what what they would experience in the wild. How do we translate that into our captive situation? So looking at their natural history, zookeepers will do a lot of research to try and make sure that they can provide the best possible enrichment and welfare for their animals. And so then that can often translate back to a nutritional sense, like this were provided in the diet, this could elicit these species-specific behaviors and therefore improve the welfare of these animals because it stimulates these species-specific behaviors. So those kind of novel requests will kind of go through a chain of command of like, hey, I want to talk to my keeper supervisor, and then the keeper supervisor might speak to somebody else, and it eventually comes back to the nutritionist if it's a prioritized enough request within the keeper staff. But we also have consistent avenues of conversation with 
um, keeper staff of different animals that maybe have consistent seasonal changes to their diet. Like um, Tasmanian devils will go through, um, especially the females will go through a very distinct estrus period. And so that can influence their dietary needs. Um, sometimes they'll gain or lose weight. And so because of that, we either need to increase or decrease their calorie content in response to that seasonal change. Andean bears, um, I worked with the Andean bear keeper team because they were requesting a lot of different changes because their female, not only was she going through seasonal changes, but she was possibly pregnant. And it turns out that she eventually did become pregnant and they just had an Andean bear cub born at the San Diego Zoo. Oh, that's amazing. So cute. He is adorable. So good. Yeah. So it was really cool getting to work with them and make sure that all of the changing needs for the bears were accommodated. And then on the veterinary side, there's a lot of requests that go into place as well, because especially in the veterinary situation and context, there's a lot of different needs that are very different from an on-ground need with that the animals have, because either of an ongoing medical condition or they're monitoring the animal to see if they elicit any sort of symptoms. Um, maybe they can't take solid food right now. There were some uh, diabetic monkeys going on, so we needed to be very careful about the sugar content compared to um, the rest of their diet. Um, there was some pancreatitis that occurred in an animal. And so then you have to be very careful of the fats in the diet because the pancreas is reacting to the amount of fats and it's the in inflammation of the pancreas. Pancreatitis means that sometimes the, um, the enzymes required for the different digestive needs of the nutrients that they're consuming that can be in flux or compromised depending on what kind of conditions they have. So in the pancreatitis case, we had to be very careful of how much fat that animal was eating and what types of fat. So the veterinary teams will have a very um, uh, close co uh, communication line with, with the nutrition staff. Um, oftentimes I would attend rounds at, with the veterinary team to discuss the different cases that were ongoing, um, whether they were uh, duty vet, vet that calls that day. So keepers called the duty vet said, hey, this, there's something up with this animal. Can you come check out this abrasion or this weird behavior or something? Um, and so then we would hear about those kind of daily cases. But then there were also more ongoing, um, consistent cases that needed to be checked in on. Um, and many of them were nutrition related. And so we got a chance to um, assist with that or listen in, provide consults. Um, so I worked very closely with the veterinarians there. That sounds so cool. Uh, that's so great. I'm curious, and I want to, to move away from the zoo stuff a little bit, but I do have one question first before we do that. I'm wondering your thoughts on uh, regular feeding versus enrichment style feeding and, and what kind of enrichment feeding and what you know should be done for animals and what, a, what effect that can have on the animals. Good question. Um, I think it's, it's a good question with a complicated and a kind of Depends on the situation answer. So I think the first thing that it depends on is what is the species that is in question? Is it a species that forages and, and is seeking out and typically eating food over an 18 hour day? Horses, for example. Horses graze for up to 18 hours a day, which means that they're an, they are a species that are dependent on consistent gut fill or having food in their belly and their gut. So you start seeing health issues, especially digestive tract health issues in animals that are reliant on this kind of consistent feeding strategy. And when they have portioned meal times, you can 
having issues with that. Um, but if you manage them properly, if you have multiple feedings throughout a day, or you have um, things to enrich them and make them uh, both mentally and physically and uh, digestively stimulated throughout the day, that can um, help curb a lot of the issues that you might see in those very long window type foragers. There's always been a lot of talk about carnivores and, and feeding carnivores, um, because especially with larger carnivorous species, they can have pacing issues, which is definitely a big welfare um, concern. Pacing is a very strong indicator of some sort of um, mental lack of stimulus. Um, and that sometimes can come from a hunger standpoint, but that sometimes can also just come from not feeling generally mentally stimulated. Um, and so it helps having that enrichment type feeding because that can both mentally and physically and then digestively stimulate them um, because they have to work for that food. And I think it just depends on the situation and the animal, but from a nutritionist standpoint, making sure that enrichment feeding isn't separate from meal feeding because then they're getting more calories than they should be. And that can lead to obesity or other types of health issues. So something that I tell a lot of dog owners, because I love working with dogs, I love working, uh, I've helped train and pet sit and whatever in my free time. Um, I'm very dog affinity related. Something um, that I really like to tell dog owners is that if you're going to give them treats, take like a small portion or like 25% of the food that they would be getting in a day and use that as their treat. Because then they feel like they're getting a reward. They're still getting their meal times when they would be expecting to get a meal. But then throughout the day, they're not getting these very high fat, high sugar, high protein type treats that can have some issues um, if you feed that too consistently. And then they aren't getting an increase in calories either so that there isn't any um, risk of them leading to obesity or other health issues. Of course, really delicious high value treats can be useful for eliciting certain behaviors. So if you're trying to ha like work on recall with your dog, that's a really great way to make sure that they come back because they are going to get the piece of something that they love. So that's a, that's a good example also in a zoo and a captive sense in that if you have these high value rewards to elicit specific behaviors, that's a really great way to build that consistency and reliability with those animals. However, making sure that they're not getting an increase, like if that's not bumping their calorie count for the day because captive animals have such a controlled environment that anything out of flux in that controlled environment can throw off that balance pretty easily. And they're already going to be flux themselves just because they're wild animals and they have, it, it can be unpredictable. They can react to different things in their lifestyle. So trying to make sure that things are consistent and controlled in their environment, especially their calories is really important. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I couldn't help but notice that my dog Lexi started barking uncontrollably as soon as you said to, to cut her diet, if we're going to give her treats, I don't think she agrees with you. <laughs> I heard that Lex. Sorry, Lexi. <laughs> Oh, she's such a good girl. She's a long-haired chihuahua who thinks she is the queen of the world. Oh, bless her. She's so cute. I already love her. <laughs> I have a weird question. Go for it. You use the term gut. And it's really funny to hear somebody who's incredibly educated, who drops, you know, 10 cent words in, in every sentence without thinking about it, who knows that you need to explain stuff like pancreatitis and stuff like that. And then you say gut. 
And I'm just wondering, is, is that like an official term? And what is the difference between like gut health versus saying digestive health or, or belly health? I don't know. But it just seems strange that in this world of Latin influenced words, gut is what we're using for, for bellies. Great question. Um, and also Greek-influenced words. There's a lot of Greek influence. Fair. Um, not just Latin. But um, yeah, well, you caught me. Um, it, it's not necessarily a unacceptable word or something that is just like a lowbrow colloquialism. People do use the word gut in nutritional conversations. Um, I guess a more scientifically appropriate word would be gastrointestinal, so G-I-T, you might see that acronym thrown out a lot. That tends to just re refer to digestive tract, like the small intestine and the large intestine portion of the digestive tract. But the digestive tract is everything from the starting of the mouth all the way down to the very end to the rectum. Um, and that's all included in the digestive tract because each portion is important to digestive health and digestive um, processes. But yes, Gut tends to be, from my experience, more related to the small and the large intestine. And there's a lot of importance to those specific components of the digestive tract. And there's a lot of studies that have been done mostly looking at small versus large intestine type um, context situations um, and the, the different components that are specific to those areas in digestion. But the rest of the digestive tract is just as important. And I, I love all of it. So I don't have a, I don't have a favorite child portion of the digestive <laughs> Okay. I expected to have keepers tell me that, but I never expected to hear that about parts of a digestive tract. So. <laughs> They're all so interesting. There's actually really cool stuff. Like even places where you think they might be boring, which I mean... I they're all so interesting. They're all different. And we're learning more about them every day that there's just all of these nuances. Like even the esophagus, which you think would maybe be like the most boring thing. Like it's one of the most muscular things in your body and it's doing so much for you. Thank you, esophagus, guys. Wow, that's amazing. All right. Thank you for that. That's it for this week's episode. Tune in next week for the second part of my interview with Mieko Temple, where we start with a story about the less glamorous aspects of her research, get into a discussion about her incredible art, and have a visit from my puppy, Lexi, turn into a chat about how to watch baby pangolin feedings online. You can find Mieko online at M-I-E-K-O-T-E-M-P-L-E -E on Instagram and mtillustrations.com. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. <laughs>